they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing verbs like a turtle. Merkin fool, like Squirtle and Kate Gould. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme. I'm a boss. Flip the coin, toss, this draws. I'm out of loss. How my brains get busted, slinging lettuce into cups. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about problem solving. I've been thinking about nature, science, and the implications of the approaches we adopt. I've been thinking about getting to the root of an issue and the importance of asking why. The best intentions, ethics, boundaries, and unintended consequences. And the dangers of doing something primarily because we can versus really pondering whether it's a good idea. My guest today is scientist Philip Taylor. He's an inventor, environmentalist, and maybe part-time crusader. Taylor is a postdoctoral fellow at Duke University and a research associate in rainforest ecology at the University of Colorado Boulder, and he's focused on sustainability. Welcome, Philip, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Philip recently built a greenhouse to breed thousands of non-biting black soldier flies, but we'll come back to that in a moment. I want to start, Philip, just a little bit about um, your path to science. What led you to, to study it and choose it as a career? Well, it started at an early age. I, I grew up in a family that was very, very attentive to the place where we lived. And that place we refer to as a family is Goshen. It's not actually Goshen. It's a biblical reference to the sort of land of milk and honey. And and my, my mom and dad still live there. It's, it's the family farmhouse. Um, all the children live away, but we, we come back there and there's an immediate sense of home not only in, in the structure of the place, but the ecology of the place, the birds, the grasses, the trees. Um, we all know it like the back of our hand. And I grew up in that kind of environment. And my grandfather uh, was also that way, which I think shaped uh, who my dad and my mom became. And I remember long walks along local creeks and in local trails and woodlands uh, you know, he te him testing me on what species that tree is, what species this tree is. And it's funny because I see my dad doing the exact same thing uh, with my kids when we go home. Um, he'll be, you know, based on the bark of a tree or the, the smell of the wood, he'll, he'll quiz them on whether it's a cherry or an ash or a hickory. And so uh, that's, uh, that, that's, that's where I was born of. And do you think that was a conscious effort at stewardship, that that was something that your grandfather and then your father wanted to instill in the next generations? I think it was implicitly principled, but there was no intention of me or holding me to an expectation. Um, you know, my, my dad and my grandfather are both doctors, and, uh, which is a very service-oriented lifestyle. And I think that was the underpinning ethic which, which, with which I was raised within. Um, and for me, it, it manifested through ecology and understanding our environment and our dependency on it. Um, I flirted with the idea of becoming a doctor, too, because I saw how tangible the, the impact is on a community and being able to help and serve, um, though I found myself more at home in, in the creeks and the woods, and so I took a different career path. And were you a, an explorer as a kid? Did you set out into the woods and, and seek adventure? Absolutely. Yeah, I was homeschooled for several years, and I was done my homework by 10 in the morning, and I spent the rest of the day uh, building forts, building dams, uh, climbing trees, uh, what have you, and, and <laughs> in between the, the farmlands and the woodlands of, of rural Maryland. 
And do you think, like, even when you were a kid, were you aware of the interrelatedness of your environment? Was that something you were paying attention to, the connection between things? That's a good question. I, I don't know whether I was consciously aware of interconnectedness. Um, I think I was struck more so by wonder and, and curiosity. And, you know, I remember the first time I saw a great blue heron fly through the floodplains uh, where I grew up. And I, I ran home in a sweat because I thought it was a pterodactyl. And <laughs> that was first grade. That's yeah, awesome. It was first grade. I remember exactly where I saw this thing. It looked like something out of prehistoria. And uh, I went home, and my description was so extravagant, my mom didn't know what I was talking about. Um, it took a second sighting for me to point it out to her. Um, so, you know, the world came alive through that kind of uh, – it was more explosive, I think. Um, you know, finding a crawdad underneath a rock, catching salamanders – those sorts of things. I, I, I don't think I appreciated the, the connection and, and de- interdependency or the web of things until I was much older. And do you think you brought the wonder with you to your study um, on science? For sure. That's, you know, I, I always think of myself, uh, you know, uh, that, that um, yearning for discovery and understanding is what drove me in many ways into this field of ecology. Um, just having the space and time professionally to investigate the beauty of the world. I mean, that's that's really what drove me into academia, and um, I've enjoyed that that part of it. And were you approaching it with the with a particular question or set of questions, or was it just to know more about? the beauty of the world well it's not mutually exclusive those those objectives um i believe in a very very highly question oriented type of science i think questions are what fundamentally drive someone whether they're they know it or not and questions when they're focused really give you the ability to incisively cut through what can be a mess to figure out what's controlling what or how things are organized um, if you don't have a guiding question in science, it can be very difficult to understand what you're doing. And, and going back to that or, original question um, provides a framework and a guide for you know, measuring things or looking at the data in a certain way or throwing up your theory against another theory. And so questions are, are highly important, but, but there is this sort of parallel world of natural history that is, is more observational and more wonder-oriented, I think. Um, and and those aren't mutually exclusive. They can work hand in hand. Okay. So let's talk about the flies and what you're up to now. You built a greenhouse to breed thousands of non-biting black soldier flies and you nailed a fish to the outside. (laughs) At some point we're going to talk about what that fish represents. Um, but I want to start with what the heart of the problem is that you are solving for by breeding the flies. Yeah. So the big picture is, is, you know, Wendell Berry, who's my spiritual guru, um, to paraphrase him, he once wrote, you know, how we eat largely determines how the world is used. And what he means by that is how we eat determines our style and type of agriculture. And, you know, if you were an alien flying around Earth, what you would see uh, mostly are fields and forms of agriculture. It's the dominant way that humans have, have impacted the world. 
um, from various sort of nuts and bolts like carbon emissions, you know, 30 to 35 percent of carbon dioxide emissions and greenhouse gas warming comes from agriculture, um, you know, to, you know, perspectives around that to our very um, ability to exist on the planet is related to how we eat and where we get food. And, and what I've learned is that the industrial system that is developed often has these massive and unforeseen consequences that extend around the globe and affecting ecosystems and cultures in a way that I, I don't think promote resilience, durability, or health. And so through my work uh, in Africa, through my work in Southeast Asia, in Costa Rica, um, I, became I became frustrated with the impacts of industrial agriculture and it, it sent me back to the drawing board of saying, what are better ways to feed the world? And that led me to insects. And with the idea of we might feed the world with insects or that they might play a, a yeah. different role? Good question. So that we might feed the world with insects by feeding animals well. So by far our, most, our largest impact on ecosystems is the transformation of those ecosystems into agricultural land. I, I think of you know, the soybean fields that are taking over the southern Amazon or the palm oil plantations that are taking over Indonesia and Sumatra, uh, biodiverse places um, that, that serve and are, are valuable in, in many ways. And, you know, in, in, in order to create a more sustainable food system, ideally we wouldn't be doing those things. And so uh, insects are these power-packed nutritional um, creatures that livestock like fish and cows and pigs and chickens um, have evolved to eat. Um, more uh, fish and chickens, uh, less so ruminants. We can get into that if you like. Um, but anyway, at, at the very basic level, uh, insects are this wonderful source of nutrition that's being underutilized for feeding animals well and sustainably. And are we talking about primarily farmed animals, including farmed fish? So we're talking about chickens and hogs and also um, primarily the farmed fish? Yeah, that, that's right. We're talking about uh, livestock, animals that are raised for consumption. And my, my, my thinking is, is that you know, meat consumption is with us as a civilization, um, and we need to do it as best we can. I'm almost vegetarian myself. Any, any meat that I eat, I, I know where it comes from. And, and I'm aware of the, the connections and the implications of eating that meat. But, but, you know, globally, as more and more countries develop on the same economic trajectory as the U.S., um, we can expect a massive rise in meat consumption. Um, currently, we consume around 270 million tons per year. It'll probably run and, you know, rise another 200 million tons by 2050. And that's because places like India and China and other you know, economically developing countries are, are following our path, um, regardless of whether we suggest they do that. Yeah, and, whether, uh, whether it has proven to be a good path or not for all sorts of reasons. That's right. Including uh, pandemic diseases and all sorts of new things that are springing up because yep. of what we're changing, what we're eating. So I want to drill down a little bit about the, the problem you're solving for with breeding the flies. And you had said for every pound of farm fish, that we eat, it requires five to 10 pounds on average of small wild fish. And right now, where are those smaller fish coming from? The small fish are coming from our oceans predominantly. And the, the main fish that we use to grind 
into commercial animal feed are anchovies and sardines, as well as herring, shad, and menhaden. Um, these are f called forage fish. And within the oceanic ecosystem, uh, they sit right in the middle of the food chain. They link everything from the algae and the zooplankton to the higher orders of life like whales, uh, pelagic fish, um, larger fish, tuna, birds. And so they're the central cog of the ecosystem. And for the last you know, 100 years or so, we've been using gigantic nets to pluck these schools of fish out of the ocean, uh, dry them, grind them, and feed them to animals, use them for fertilizer, um, and increasingly actually for like fish oil pills for human consumption. And we've, we've done it at such a rate that now 70% of our fisheries are overexploited or collapsed. And it's an impact that most humans, um, well, it's, it's difficult to perceive. The ocean is vast. And so it's very difficult to understand the impact of that um, on the ecosystems as well as on the economics of just human fisheries. So um, that's... And what impact have you noted uh, occurring in the ocean? Well, I grew up in the Chesapeake Bay where you can read historical accounts of the the abundance of the bay. Everything from blue crabs to um, forage fish to rockfish um, to the water clarity that came from those fish and oysters. And that entire uh, picture is gone. Uh, the waters are virtually empty and the bay is in, a, is in a terrible state of ecological decline. And the state of decline of the bay obviously has impacts for you know, economic impacts for people that want to eat blue crabs and catch blue crabs or people that want to eat oysters. Um, they're just not there in the, in, the, in the quantities that warrant a major fishing operation. And so that connection to the ecosystem that um, I grew up with is just a, a glimmer of what it could be. And uh, it makes me sad. So let's talk a little bit about the, the solution, about breeding the flies. Um, why non-biting black flies? What unique qualities do they have that make them the, the right thing to breed? So in general, flies uh, are, are the decomposers, the initial decomposers of any ecosystem. And uh, Wes Jackson, the founder of the Land Institute in Kansas, famously talks about and writes about how human systems in their best form should mimic natural systems. And if you look at the current human system, um, we do a very bad job of incorporating decomposition within our system. Uh, for instance, we're, we're very good at producing things like the farm to table movement. We're great at bringing things from the farm to the table. However, we're really bad at taking what's on the table and left over and putting it back into the farm and closing that circle. And so flies in nature uh, decompose uh, what's left over. And in a natural ecosystem, there is no waste. And we accumulate waste in droves as humans. And so the idea is, is at a system level scale is to add flies within the food economy in order to create a more circular economy and recycle the value of lost food waste um, back into animal feed. And so flies are really, really good at doing that. Um, they're more efficient than things like beetles or worms. Um, they can live in very dense populations and they're voracious eaters. And where did the initial idea come from? Like, was there an aha moment when you were like, okay, flies are the answer? It wasn't quite that much of a eureka moment. Um, it came 
actually on the soccer field. I play soccer uh, with a group of guys who I'm pretty close with. And, um, you know, I was sharing my frustrations about working in the palm oil industry and the, the challenge of, of pushing for reform to make the, the industry more sustainable. And a friend of mine said, well, why don't you just look at better alternatives altogether rather than reform something from the inside out. And uh, he mentioned insects. And so I, I spent two or three days doing some back-of-the-envelope calculations, convincing myself that it was worthwhile. And, uh, <clears throat> and it took a little bit of time. It took me about a week to convince myself it was worth thinking about. And then that was sort of the start of it all. So let's talk just a little bit about the palm oil industry and mm -hmm. how that began. And was that something that sort of in the beginning looked like that was going to be a positive alternative to something else that was being um, farmed? And, yeah. and what has happened to that as it's, as it's grown? So palm oil is a double-edged sword. It's When you compare it to competitive crops like soybeans – it, it's much more productive, naturally, without any genetic modification. Um, it requires much less fertilizer and pesticide. Um, it can be grown in different areas that are already um, arable land, but maybe not as profitable, like um, cacao um, or rubber or teak. And so it's a really high-value high crop that can help hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people well, most certainly millions, out of poverty and help them develop economically. Um, it's also one of these crops that, you know, there, there are large corporations increasingly that are investing in it, but there's also a great number of examples of cooperative production models. I worked with one in southern Costa Rica where small landholders could really um, turn a great economic profit on their land and send their kids to college and pay for education <clears throat> and really wonderful things. The, the, the challenge with it is, is that, uh, you know, 50% of it has come at the cost of rainforest. You know, rainforests have been, been chopped down to plant this stuff, losing biodiversity, losing carbon storage, um, violating uh, indigenous rights, particularly in Indonesia and Malaysia, Papua New Guinea, um, increasingly in the Amazon and now in the Congo. And so it's this, it's this crop that has a lot of potential, if done right. Um, in land that's already being used for agriculture. But the way that current economics are structured, it's profit at all cost. And so uh, it's disturbing in that sense. And I've watched a lot of forests um, being cleared around the world uh, for palm oil. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a race that we've already run in America. We're actually, you know, you look around America and we've already – um, we have more forests now growing in America than we did 250 years ago because we already hacked everything down once or twice. And so we're, we're, beyond, we're beyond the state where we need to be using our resources in that way. We just, we just export our destruction to other places. Well, it's, a, it's an interesting thought, the idea of reform versus overhaul versus looking somewhere else. And within this problem, even as well, because I was thinking about when I was reading some of the, the interviews you'd given before and some of the work you'd writ written on, that you had said every pound of farm fish we eat, there's five to ten pounds on average of small wild fish, such as herring, anchovies, and sardines, the one you, you talked about, to raise it. And I start thinking about, well, 
So how much of the problem is what the fish are eating versus, you know, how far back do we go? Like, is the real problem farmed fish? And as a yeah. scientist, where do you decide to jump in to, hmm. and, and what to solve for? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it's, it's definitely not cut and dry. And yeah, it's definitely not cut and dry. And it's anything like plastic bags. Okay, is the real problem we're using plastic bags or we need to make plastic bags that are biodegradable? You know, it's, it's, it's all so interconnected and it's tough yeah. to decide where we should focus. Oh, it's super tough. Uh, I mean, farm fish, just as a topic of discussion, mm -hmm. is so controversial and, and difficult because whether it whether it's you know good or bad, which I, I rarely think in those terms uh, in black and whites, but but for sake of discussion, it, you know, always ends with this comment of like it depends. You know, it depends uh, if that's a good thing to do based on the situation, the environment, the ecology, and I think this is where you know the food system ultimately ultimately needs to become more localized. So whatever we do and grow is adapted to that region in, in, in a way that doesn't harm uh, ecosystems or people. Um, and I think that when the food system is, that, is as abstracted as it is now, it's very easy to sweep these destructions underneath the rug. I mean, that's a classic problem with fish farming. You know, they're done in areas where no one ever sees them. And the way they're done as well, right? Yeah. 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 Well, it's, it's uh, the, you know, they contaminate the ocean so effectively um, that, you know, there, but there, there are solutions. Like, for instance, um, really interesting technology coming out of Lockheed Martin, actually. Um, you know, maybe the only technology that I've enjoyed coming out of them that I'm aware of. Um, they created a, a floating fish pod um, with some folks in Hawaii where they create, they raise kampachi, which is a schooling fish, great for sushi, high, very high value fish. Um, these pods freely float in ocean currents. And, and so the contamination issues around disease, around nutrient pollution, that are the classic examples of a bad fish farm, are, are eliminated um, in the fact that they float freely in the ocean, um, in, in ocean currents. And so, and then they go and collect them at some given interval. And so there, there's, there's interesting solutions coming up. There's also more and more folks looking at raising fish on land where you have completely closed <laughs> water systems. You know, it's, but it's, Forget you know, the water. We'll, we'll raise fish that don't need it. Yeah, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough one. I mean, you know, fish are much more efficient at using resources than things that walk. You know, anything that walks uses the majority of its energy to stand up. Um, fish just float. They have a little bag in their, in their bodies that um, they can kind of hover in the water. And so it's, it's a very energy uh, efficient uh, process. And so that, that makes fish, if you had a pound of feed and you wanted to get the highest conversion efficiency um, for that feed, you'd feed it to a fish. You wouldn't feed it to anything with legs. And so, you know, there's these it's the same thing with palm oil, like palm oil is much, much more efficient, but at what cost? And so, I don't know, again, it's not cut. And yeah, I mean, cost and consequences, right? And unforeseen consequences. And I want to maybe spend the, the next half of the show talking a little bit about that. So we're going to take a short break. And yeah. then we'll come back 
and talk about that. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I'm here talking with scientist Philip Taylor, and we'll be back in just a moment. This is KDPI 88.5 FM Ketchum, community-supported radio. All right, we're back. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I'm speaking with scientist Philip Taylor. We are talking about flies and fish and palm oil and and, uh, nature. And so, Philip, I want to talk a little bit about uh, focusing on on nature and biology, pretty much starting with Biology 101 and the complex relationships that we know exist, but that we absolutely don't fully understand as far as this interreliant web and a a very fragile balance. I know you focused a little bit in your work, the fragile balance in the ocean and how that's being destroyed with all of the overfishing of these small fish that we're using for feed elsewhere. And the idea that sort of, you know, you break one string and and a lot of other strings, you know, fall apart and, and have action reaction. We've talked a little bit about it as far as fisheries go. And I know there's been in our area a lot of debate about the salmon and how the ones that escape the farms are affecting the rest of the salmon and just the whole um you know, how in the future they'll affect the um, free salmon in other ways. Uh, Is this something that you've been thinking about as you've been embarking on breeding the flies? Um, Would you mind repeating the end of that question just so I can Yeah, so I'm just thinking about, I don't know if you you watch science fiction films much, or you have in the past, um, and you know, like the birds or the blob or or the fly, um, where science starts to meddle, and I I mean it in with good connotations, but where you're you're going in and you start making adjustments in the balance of nature. And so when I first heard about you breeding the flies, yeah. Um, that's where my mind leapt. And I wondered if you'd spend any time thinking about that. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, what is nature is a big question that, you know, many books have been writing on. And, and my, my view is that we are nature. Like we, you know, we're maybe a perversion of it and we're out operating on a spectrum, you know, humans, but we by no means are operating outside the bounds of nature. Um, we're still very much part and parcel of it, you know, as Thoreau said. And, and so I think within that spectrum, um, you have to be conscious of the liberties you take um, so they don't create consequences that are bad. And I mean, you could argue that eating meat in the way we are is a bad thing. My take on that is to be more pragmatic and say, well, how can we do it in the best way possible? With breeding flies, one goal that we have is to keep the genetics diverse and as wild as possible. Um, so in that way, we're not creating a superbug. We're not doing any selective breeding. It's totally possible. Um, I mean, every agricultural crop that we see that you pass, you know, in your car in the field is is a um, has been selected for it uh, using uh, trait selection and breeding. And so at this point, we're not meddling with sort of superbug trait stuff, and, and there's obviously GMO potential and all that kind of thing, and any anything alive. Um, we feel like the inherent capabilities of the bugger stand for themselves, and and so we've actually taken the opposite tack, where we we actually get wild flies and bring them into the breeding program to ensure that they reflect their uh, you know native condition. 
And you don't have any fears of like Georgia kudzu <laughs> takes over. No, so that's that's an interesting that 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 has already kind of been run the invasive thing. Um, these things, as we can best guess, were distributed equatorially around the world during the Dutch East India Trading Company uh, days when during the 1600s uh, there was massive global trade happening. And these maggots essentially infested food on ships. And so we don't really know where they're native to. Um, we do know that if there's a deep freeze, not even a deep freeze, if there's a freeze at all um, in the winter, that these do not survive. And so they, th this species hugs the, the equator um, along basically a freeze-thaw line um, distributed around the world. So you can find them natively in Colorado – um, on a warm year, you know, in the south, uh, but in a cold year, they don't get up this far. So, so you know, you, it's, you feel pretty confident with your ability to con control the effects in the future because you said at this point, like at this point, we're doing it this way. And I just wonder if you lie awake yep. at night ever thinking about, all right, well, this is the way we're doing it, and we're being ethical and responsible about it. Um, yep. And how much responsibility lies with us as far as trying to control the effects or what happens, how it progresses in the future. Yeah. Yeah. The risk of this becoming an invasive species, uh, is virtually non-existent because, um, a couple reasons. Uh, it's not invasive in the sense that it, um, outcompetes native species. So there's, there's no, uh, as far as we know, there's no, um, kudzu effect where it completely monodominates something and takes over. Um, there are many foreign plants and foreign insects that live in Colorado, um, but aren't invasive, you know, in, in terms of having their deleterious effects on other, other wildlife. I think in a little bit just about things that, again, you know, they, they have, as you said, you know, it's not a good or bad, and there's this scale and this balance, and it shifts. And just as far as, like, with antibiotics or antibacterial soap, right? These yeah. things have a place and they're great, but then being overused or used in ways that start to have consequences and effects that hadn't been planned for. For sure. Yeah, and, and, and a lot of those are unforeseen. And, and you just do the best that you can where you are. Um, I mean, that, that is a, a major... Um, you know, marker of civilization and progress. I mean, you know, we, we do things that make a lot of sense at one point and we look back and they're awful. Um, you know, slavery or something. You know, it's, it, we, we have a history of doing that and it's almost impossible to see what we're doing now that could be so harmful in the future. Um, and that's just, that's the nature of uh, evolving morality. And so how does that play into your decision-making? I recently saw an article in The Verge by James Temple um, about Bill Gates endorses genetically modified mosquitoes to combat malaria. And my 11-year-old 11, 11 son went ballistic. He's like, oh, my gosh, what is the guy? An idiot? Is he crazy? Yeah. You know, because he's thinking about it not as, as, you know, here's Bill Gates, who this has been his lifelong goal in philanthropy. 
um, that he's sort of thinking, oh, you know, doesn't doesn't he know what happens, you know, when you get the cat to grab the mouse and then the dog and what happens from them? And that uh, a handful of scientists have already created mosquitoes that are either infertile or resistant to the malaria right. parasite using CRISPR genetic cutting. And so that right. sounds like, oh, you know, if you just look at it from that angle, wow, how wonderful. But if you go down the road and think, okay, well, we certainly don't like mosquitoes that are carrying malaria or any other diseases, um, but they serve a role in the web of biology. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, especially that sort of thing where you're going in and you're modifying the very nature of reproduction and uh, community, community dynamics, um, like infertility, things like that. I, I think that it's, you know, I, I, I personally look at those things very um, skeptically and, and I'm in no way fundamentally opposed to genetic modification. I, I think that we've been doing it in various ways for a long time um, and it's been called different things and, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a proponent of it. Um, but I'm mainly not a proponent of it because of the, of the power that's held by the people that control it, um, which is a different conversation. Oh, no, but, Monsanto's next on my list, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so that's, that's actually my bigger, that's my bigger fear is that we actually are taking power away from the people um, to control their own fate. And, and that's scary. And then that's, that's where the genetic modification scares me the most. I, I think the... You know, the potential to really reorganize ecosystems by tampering with uh, genetics is, is high. And, you know, I think we're probably jumping on that train too quickly. And, and how has your thought process around this evolved? And, and is this something that d is discussed at all while you're studying uh, various aspects of science and learning to become a scientist? Because it seems that the... Mm the consequences are becoming more and more extreme, the possibilities of more and more extreme consequences based on, you know, as again, this scale, based on our ability to have more and more success in changing things in our environment. So, Yeah, oh yeah, this is uh, the many, many heated debates over beers and coffee, and and this is, uh, you know, the heart of, of a lot of conversation. The I'm part of... Um, a team that's starting a food system program, a Masters of the Environment graduate program at CU, and th these kinds of ethical cruxes are uh, a huge part of of what we're going to be wading into with students. And so, um, you know, it's it's a, it's it's complicated, and it requires a balance of being able to think scientifically um, as well as firm grounding in ethics and philosophy of science, understanding how values, I mean, it's, it's, it's an enormous task to be able to cut through these things clearly. And is there a, a check and balance system as well? Because I'm thinking about it, you know, you've got it at different levels because you've got the individual. And as an individual, it's got to be so exciting and so rewarding to be able to create things and 
um, affect things and solve problems that it seems sometimes that might be hard as an individual to kind of step back and look at the bigger picture of mm-hmm. how that might affect things, um, you know, currently or in the future because you're so focused and it takes such drive and focus to create something in, in this area. Yeah. Oh, for sure. It's a huge issue. That's not, the hood is not lifted up off of that issue in the sense that when scientists do work with the goal of being objective, very rarely um, are the values of that scientist discussed. What's the end game and goal? You know, the, the neutral observer is non-existent. I mean, philosophically, as well as uh, functionally, you know, to go out into the rainforest and observe something without, without bias. Um, and so, you know, the value systems by which we approach questions um, is obviously something that's uh, that we're aware of, but I think in terms of scientific training, it's often it's often uh, shelved to the back burner in terms of being able to think about the holistic integration of objectivity and the value system you bring to it. Um, I've I've drummed on that for a long time within academics, but it's 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 not something that we're seeing a a, a tidal shift toward that kind of conversation. Especially you look at it in the technology area, you know, when we're talking about creating machines that have their artificial intelligence. And mm-hmm. you just like, you know, for those of us who are not scientists, you want to be like, oh, my gosh, have you not seen the movies? You know, do you not see what happens? And yet you can imagine that if you're there working in one of these research labs or in one of these production facilities, you know, it, it couldn't be more exhilarating or more exciting. And, and what a sense of achievement and success to have actually created it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the question of appropriate technology is, is something that I see more and more popping up in discussions. And there's some rich work done in that that I'm not very familiar with. Um, but I've thought about re, re-approaching because, you know, I'm designing a system which is essentially a technology flow. It's a biotech solution, a very crude one um, that uses machines to efficiently handle and produce uh, bugs. And you know, there's there's obviously people that will be employed there, but technology can be really simple. Technology can be shelves. Technology can be a pump. It can be um, putting food waste in a in a particular bin. Those are all pieces of technology, whether those are appropriate or not, um, and how they modify culture and civilization is, is where the debate lies. Um, the, the, the issue of technology um, application is a huge gray space that, um, I don't know, I think it's fascinating, and honestly, I haven't thought about it too closely. So let's talk about how this particular idea gets put into practice, both on a small um, and local level, and then how it gets beyond that. Mm-hmm. I just had seen a something I think I saw it on the web about a beer company, craft beer, and I guess it was an article I read, Heather Gantley in the Saltwater Brewery, um, mm-hmm. and they have created, they're a small brewery, and they've created a sustainable approach to beer packaging. They've got six rings, the six-pack rings that are 100% biodegradable and edible. Mm 
they constructed of barley and wheat ribbons. And for them, it's very expensive, but they talked about the cost becoming very small once it was adopted industry-wide and that then then it would be minimal. So sort of what's your plan for starting this off? You know, you've got your greenhouse built and you're on the farm. What are the next steps? Next step is to build a facility that can handle uh, between 10 and 15 tons of food waste per day where that food waste becomes the food for the larva. Um, The real trick to shifting the market is getting the cost of production low enough that you can actually sell these bugs. And I can't touch that market in the greenhouse that I'm working in. We just don't produce enough given the overhead and man hours um, to even pay ourselves. And so, you know, there are certainly examples of on-farm applications where we actually talk to farmers about how to do this on their farm. But for Mad Ag and where we want to go is we envision a facility that's dovetailed within the municipal waste system where food waste is already showing up um, in the truck and is currently either being dumped in the landfill or put in a compost pile. And what we would do is we'd process that that food waste before it ever gets there, um, extracting more value out of it and recycling it back into the food system. So for us, just like the, the beer packers, a certain scale is required to make it work economically. And who are you who are you selling the bugs to initially and then in in the long term? Yeah, so we're we're starting out by selling just basically a bag of bugs for backyard chickens. Um, so you know that's an open market where we can get um, a higher value for each pound of bug we produce. Um, backyard chickens are you know, a great way for people to be connected to their food. And they're also treated more like pets than livestock. And so um, these bugs can be used currently to supplement their health and their diet. And so we're starting there um, with just a simple kind of pound per bag of bugs and with the goal of helping those revenues, helping us drive our costs of production lower. And so there's there's sort of a suite of boutique markets that we're going to start at from the top and work down. And it'll probably take us a year and a half to really get production to a place where we want to be able to sell to um, open feed markets. And where are the flies in the food chain? Who eats the flies? So the flies are eaten by the animals. Um, think of a free-range chicken. You know, It likes its space and it likes its bugs um, or trout in a river. Um, you know, the very basis of fly fishing is insects that trout eat. And so these insects are very well suited to go into, into animal feed um, to replace unsustainable ingredients like fish meal and soybeans. And why are the soybeans not a good solution? Well, soybeans aren't altogether bad. It's the fact that, uh, similar to you and I, if we ate one source of protein all of our life, it, it, it wouldn't be good for us um, nutritionally and metabolically. And so a soybean, evolutionarily speaking, has been fighting its entire life not to be eaten. Uh, its seed wants to sprout and become a plant. And so there are, there are these cofactors that hinder digestion. Um, animals tend to get sicker if they eat soybeans um, exclusively. And obviously the big industries that drive the soy market are working on solving those problems. Um, but there will be a need for high-grade protein that – um, is nutritionally balanced 
for the the livestock that are being raised. And uh, bugs fall into that high-grade category. And are there any barriers to acceptance at that level um, as far as the farmers and the livestock go? Is there any reason for them to want to hold on to doing things the way they're doing it now? And, and how about the fishermen for the small fish that are supplying the feed right now? Is there any conflict there? Yeah, I mean, there's certain, there's certain, it's certainly a competitive landscape in the sense that there's only so much demand, and if you replace someone else's ingredient, they might lose some business. Um, but it's not a uh, um, what's the phrase? It's slipping my mind. But the the reality is is that the demand for livestock is so high that um, in many in many cases, I think everyone will win. I mean, the the the, the fisheries um, where people are catching small fish, they're actually being hit on regulations. Um, you know, nations and regulatory bodies are starting to realize the impact, and so they're limiting their their catches, and so they're they're in turn limiting the supply of fish to the you know fish meal market. Um, you know, many farmers that I've talked to have absolutely no um, hindrance in sort of the acceptability of insects and in feed. They actually say, "Oh my goodness, that's obvious. Why aren't we doing that?" Um, you know, my chickens love insects, and so. Uh, in that sense, there's, I don't think there's any really barriers from a farmer acceptance level. The, the bigger barrier is actually regulatory. Oddly enough, humans can eat insects um, in, in, the, in the states here, but animals aren't allowed to. And it, it stems back to these regulations that limit you know, the number of insects you can have in a can of tomatoes um, for sale. And so these, these regulations that happened you know, 30, 40 years ago have unintended consequences for animals eating insects. And, and fortunately, uh, those barriers are coming down. Um, there have been um, very thorough research studies on the use of insects and in animal feed, and, and those have been used to start pushing those regulatory barriers down. I, I expect they'll be down within the next year. And do you feel like it's a, actually it's a move to a more natural cycle of, of feed and eating? Absolutely. Yeah, it's what it's what chickens want to eat. <laughs> and so let's go ahead and feed it to them. You know, my philosophy on raising livestock is, you know, if we're going to raise animals to kill them, we, we better ensure that they have the happy, happiest life possible until their final day. And, you know, uh, chickens will spend their entire day scratching around looking for insects in the, in the grass. So why don't, why don't we just make their lives a bit happier? And, and any, do you envision any challenges with the public acceptance? I mean, as far as I'm thinking about chickens, and I'm thinking right now, you know, you've got McDonald's saying that their eggs are, are free range and that their chickens mm -hmm. are not given, you know, hormones or antibiotics or, or you know, and are raised. Well, is this a marketing problem or is this a marketing uh, plus? I think it's more of a marketing opportunity uh, because – more and more farmers and consumers care about what their animals eat. You think about the rise in grass-fed beef or the rise in free-range chickens, um, the rise in non-GMO products. Those are all market trends that reflect an increasing consumer consciousness around the health and vitality of the animal and the ecosystem they came from. And so, you know, um, I think insect-based animal feeds fall right into that kind of niche market that's growing pretty fast. I mean, 
the sustainable feed, organic feed market, non-GMO feed market in America is already around $8 billion, and it's grown you know, 400% over the last you know, 15 years or so. And so you know, there's already huge demand for this stuff, and, and, and we don't have enough actually locally to supply it. We import a lot of this from Europe and other places. And so I think that it's more of a market opportunity than a, a marketing problem. All right. Well, thanks so much, Philip. It was great speaking with you today. I appreciate you joining us on the show. Thank you so much. All right. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I've been speaking to Philip Taylor about the breeding of black flies. <laughs> 